my advice is don't wait for it. <laughs> like maybe people will end up like, well, maybe there's going to be a moment when it all just comes together or I just suddenly realise what I want to be or what I want to do. I wish I hadn't waited till I was 45 for that moment of insight. I wish for everybody that they could have it right now. That's Debbie Jenkins, published author, book coach, marketer and publisher. She believes in creating assets that work for you and one of those assets can be your book, but only if it has a clear job to do for you. Debbie is challenging the way books are being created and sold and shares some powerful insights from her own book, Stop Writing Books Nobody Reads, in this episode of Your Truth Shared. So if you're thinking of writing a book of your own, listen in, you'll be glad you did. I'm Fanola Howard intuitive marketer, your host, and founder of How Great Marketing Works. I believe that every business has a story to tell because that's how the market decides whether to buy or not. And your story has to resonate with who you are and with the people you want to serve. And this podcast is about helping you reach the market in a way that feels right to you. So if you're an entrepreneur with a dream you want to make real, then this is the podcast for you because great marketing is your truth shared. Today, we're going to talk about books because, you know, we all love books. We love to read. We love to build our knowledge. But writing a book is a different kettle of fish altogether. And writing a book is something that has increased in usage. You know, this idea that everyone thinks they should, should they have a book in them. Everyone thinks they should have a book to grow their business. And I want to talk to you, talk to someone with you about how to think about this differently. And yeah, let's go there. So welcome the wonderful <laughs> Debbie Jenkins. <laughs> and it's like, Trumbo. Hey, <laughs> it's lovely well, to have. Just before we started speaking, I've been doing some handstands just to like get the brain working. So I'm just preparing you for... I, I mean, having done handstand upside down world mode, so just prepping you. You, you do realise now we're not videoing this. <laughs> and now yes. I regret it because I'd like to see that. <laughs> so, Debbie, we were chatting because I want to write a book next year and I had to find the right person to work with. And this is the woman I found. <laughs> And it's just so interesting. You have such an interesting story. And and we'll get to the book stuff in a minute because that's really gold, right? But I love how you came to this journey uh, in a, a circuitous way. And I like this idea because so many people feel like they have to go in a straight line. But life brings us in different directions for different reasons. And, and I think there's always purpose behind that. So you're never too late to have your dream. You know what I mean? And yeah. you kind of have that too. And I love that. This is the one that, you know, I sent this in my notes to you. I love the story that you went to your, you tell it actually, not me, <laughs> to your career guidance <laughs> counsellor and said, and she asked you, what would you love to do? Yeah, she said, she said, what would you want to do? And she had this really long list in front of her, like, you know, it's in the old days where, very olden days, where everybody wrote stuff down rather than looked it up on Google yeah. or on the internet. And yeah, she had this long list in front of her. And she said, what do you want to do? And she had this list and she was ready to tick me off. And she had my little, um, the about Debbie Jenkins beside her, you know, all the gold stars and the A pluses because I was a bit of a swat. <laughs> and um, I said, <laughs> I said, I would love to be a writer. That's what I want to be. I want to be a writer, miss. And she said, nope. And she looked down the list. No, 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 no jobs for writers. Wow. <laughs> I was like, oh. Uh, and yet you don't make money from writing. There's no jobs for writers. With your results, you should go and uh, either work in a bank or be a teacher. Talk about crushing the dream. Um, eh? so yeah, really? Yeah, she said, you'll never make money out of writing. It was really, it was really kind of sad. I was a, I was a little hobby writer. I would just like little, write little stories and fiction. And I had all these little stuff going on in my head. And um, no, she just squashed that there and then. And um, so I said, so I said, well, what have you got on the list? Let me have a look. Love you know, it. it was like a flipping egg. I can't be a writer. I'm going to have to do something exciting. And mm. um, and I looked down the list and there was engineer. And I said, okay, I'll be an engineer yeah. then. 
I didn't even know really what an engineer yeah. was. I was 13, it was this like engineer. And she said, no, 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 you can't be an engineer. You're a girl. It's, it's, so. I have a knot in my stomach. The two times you said this to me, because I have a knot for two reasons. One, it's just really awful. <laughs> it's just awful. Yeah. But also my knot is there because it's not unusual. It really, really isn't. For a while, I actually became an engineer. And for a while, I went around to universities and sixth forms at schools, talking to kids, not just girls, but lots of girls, but kids in general about being an engineer, because I, I don't know, maybe we well, doing the things that maybe you don't know you could do yeah. because you've never been, you've never seen it or it's not in your family or nobody in your family yeah. has ever done it. So you don't know it even is an option. Yeah, but also let's rip up that list, you know, that list. I'm like, rip it up. But yeah. what I love is you did become an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Yay. Um, I did become an engineer. I was really quite insistent on it and I got an apprenticeship and uh, met lots of boys. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> and you did really well at it. Yeah, well, the apprenticeship was a British telecom at the time. So we're talking in the 80s now, a long time ago. Yeah. And there were 400 yeah. kids, 16-year-olds, applied for the apprenticeship. And I was the only girl of 400. And yeah. I got in and I was like, yay. And yeah. my competitive streak jumped out again. And I was like, yeah. I'm not only going to be an apprentice, I'm going to be number one apprentice. And I was like, you know, very, very competitive. Really annoying. Really and I was annoying. Laughing because before before we started this recording, <laughs> Debbie has all of these examples of really wanting to be number one a lot. So she was even before here before me for the recording. So just says it all. But yeah. I applaud you for that. So I'm just making fun, but I applaud you. Um and then you became the number one apprentice for British Telecom. You actually did your uh, degree in engineering. Electronics engineering at night. Yeah. Number one, first class honours degree. Amazing. Like, bravo. Thank you. Thank you. It was hard work because I was working full time at university yeah. at night. And I was the first. So, the first. <laughs> there you go. Now I can't resist it, can I? I was the first <laughs> in my family to go to university. So, that's, oh, you know, kind of. Uh, I was very proud of that. I'm yeah, still you're quite breaking proud the of mold. that. Yeah. 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 It's important, you know, like, bravo. And then tell us the you could take another story. So you 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 uh, you stay with British Telecom for a while, and then you move, and then you start to explore the idea of marketing, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, um, I got made redundant, went through all the usual things that kind of happen in in careers, the things that you're not expecting, some of the things that you are expecting, um, and I ended up working for a recruitment company, basically marketing other people, and I kind of thought, oh, this is kind of fun actually i was better mm. at marketing than i was at an engineer because like you know you can't shut me up so you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like sit down design something yeah can we talk about it no just sit down and design something be an engineer no no can we talk about them? so i was much better at marketing you're collaborative yeah. yes that's yeah i need to reframe that <laughs> <laughs> but i can see it in you you know you're very you, you spark off ideas. So it kind of makes sense that you went to marketing next. Yeah. And, um, and I'm very arrogant um, and I'm quite happy to admit that, you know, like I, lo I like doing things and doing them to the best I can. And the company I was working for, I thought, well, actually, this guy can run his own business. Gosh, even saying that out loud makes me embarrassed. But I'm honest and truthful. I thought, if they can run his own business, surely I can run my own business. And so that's when I came up with the idea of starting a business. I was like, okay, um, I've, I've, I've worked for large companies like British Telecom and Mitsubishi Electric and, you know, huge companies. And then I've worked for a small company and I thought, Meh, I can do this. <laughs> yeah, I think a big dose of arrogance and um, uh, lack of knowledge. Ego, uh, you know, yeah. ego, is ego is okay. And uh, actually in lots of the conversations that I've had with entrepreneurs on this podcast, they kind of say it's a necessary ingredient, you know? Yeah, if you don't think you can do it, then you you won't try. So you have to have a bit of um, something, some arrogance, I think some ego, some arrogance, something behind you to push you into taking that step because it's quite a big step. I mean, I had a lovely job and a car and, you know, cash coming in. And then I said, well, actually, 
let's just throw all that away and yeah. run your own business and see what you can do. So that's yeah. when I started in, in the late 90s, started my web design and marketing company. Yeah. Tell us more about that. Um, it went really, really well. I mean, seriously, I'd, we'd spotted this sort of trend, which was the internet. <laughs> kind of like, that seems so weird now. It's like, how can we live without the internet now? But it was new then. And I remember well, I actually, remember doing Do you um, remember? Yeah, but I remember doing uh, courses. I was doing some courses in the West of Ireland, well, actually around the country. And I used to be asked, do you think this internet thing will ever take off? <laughs> <laughs> and I go, mm, yeah, I think so. <laughs> Well, my first writing job was when I was working for a company and I was running their, uh, you know, I was an engineer for a company, but on the side I was doing their um, newsletter. So they'd started a newsletter. And my first interview with somebody, you know, like writing down what somebody said was I spoke to an engineer and I said to him, so what is the internet? (laughs) Just like that was my first ever interview as a writer, doing writing of any description as as a professional. Um, And I actually married that guy later. So I don't know if that's a good (laughs) thing or bad thing because we're now divorced. But anyway. (laughs) Let's move on. Yes. (laughs) So, um, yeah, yeah, so we, uh, so I decided that I was going, the internet was on the rise. People were interested. Nobody really understood it very much, including myself. Um, So that should be a good idea. Let's do a a website design and marketing company. And that's what we did. And we started it. And it went really, really well for a few years. We ended up with, uh, we started in my house at a three-story terraced house in the centre of Birmingham and we just Mm. slowly took on more and more people and just took over more rooms in this three-storey house until we were like overflowing. Then we we, um, rented offices and uh, grew the team even more. It was really cool. It was very, um, it was very 90s, um, you know, chillaxy, beanbaggy type style, um, quite democratic kind of fun. Yeah. And that went really, really well. And then uh, the dot-com bust hit us. And, well, it hit yeah. everybody, obviously. And we had to make redundancies. And uh, that, uh, that well, uh, the hardest hard. thing I've ever had to do, ever, ever, from yeah. a business point of view, I've ever had to do was make redundancies. Uh, even just it, it makes cold shiver down my back now, just thinking about it. It's a, a real um, Did horrible. you get help with that? You know, at the time... When you have to make redundancies, I mean, this is a time where advice could be really appreciated of how to approach it. Was that available at the time? You know, we're much more aware these days of mindset and taking care of our employees and the people we work with. That probably wasn't there then, was it? It wasn't. The only advice we took was legal advice, as in what do you know what? How can we do this correctly? Because I was very, um, by the way, I'm like competitive and correct. It's got to be correct. <laughs> so I have both those running at the same time. Um, and uh, so we took legal advice to do it correctly. And then we over uh, did that because we did everything we possibly could to help our people. We gave them three months to find work while we were employing them still. Um, so that was really, really hard. But there was nobody around like emotional or yeah. um mindset support there was nothing around those days i mean it was my accountant and the legal guy that just like said do this 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 is the legal bits these are the documents and we we had to work it out as we went along yeah Um, it was terrifying yeah it was really difficult but you built it back we did we built it back and we kind of like um um I hate this word, but it was what we did. We pivoted, darling. We pivoted and we changed direction a little bit. Um, and that was when we were, that's when I ended up back at writing. It was like um, we'd been writing a newsletter for years and sharing that our ideas with clients. And um, we put all those ideas from the newsletter and the things we'd been sharing into a book. And we said, okay, yeah. uh, let's write a book. Why not? That, you know. Why not? It can't be that hard, can it? <laughs> My <laughs> usual attitude to most things can't be that hard, can it? Other people have done it. It can't be that hard. Let me work out how to do it. So that's what we did. We wrote a book and yeah. the book was bloody brilliant, actually, because what it did was it opened doors. Um, it was like, you know, we're talking 2003, 2004, and it allowed us to, um, it got me on stages. So I ended up going around the country, 
doing speeches, getting more clients, getting paid to do speeches. Um, and the book was was um, a real credibility card, I call them credibility because it was a credibility card. It was like, hey, this person has written a book. And yeah. um Right then, and it's not quite the same now, it still is a credibility clue, but right then it was like, oh my gosh. And I remember the first time anyone ever asked me to (laughs) autograph the book, and I was so excited, like a child. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, of course, I know how to do this. (laughs) I couldn't even find a pen. (laughs) So I was very excited. That was fun. Then you moved from that business, you sold your share in that business, and then you moved into where you are now, actually, which is really interesting. Yeah, so um, I sold my share in that business as a publishing company. It turned into a publishing company. And because uh, I moved to Spain as well during that time. So in 2005, I moved to Spain and um, ran the company from Spain for a while. But that was it was much more challenging. It was a very, Spain's not great for um, companies. It's much easier for uh, autonomous, what they call in the UK, um, so traders, basically. But for um, companies, Spain is quite legislatively uh, challenging, (laughs) challenging on red tape in general. Um, So it was just getting more and more difficult. So I sold my half in the business and, and walked away from, from that for a while and went off and had a bloody brilliant midlife crisis. Um, <laughs> it didn't feel like a brilliant midlife crisis at the time. It felt like uh, the end of the world. But in hindsight, yeah. with a bit of reframing um, and, and putting my competitive head on, I had the best midlife crisis anyone has ever had. And <laughs> I had, Now you and see, think, you yeah. have to say why it was the best midlife crisis. Uh, it, for me, it was... Um, uh, a time of really coming back to what was important. Uh, I, mm. I'd kind of raced along, raced. I mean, I speak quickly. I move quite quickly. I am like um, a little bit, um, yeah, I'm quite energetic. For yes. <laughs> a better description. And I'd moved along at a really quite a fast pace, doing things, trying things, retrying things, doing things. And it was a time, I suppose, for uh, pausing and reflection and to come back mm. to what is it that I really want to do? What do I really want to do? And it was about writing um, books and helping people to, um, to, to write books that other people want to read <laughs> and, yeah. and that become useful as assets for them going forward rather than as um, what can happen is that but they're a liability. <clears throat> Did that insight come in the midlife crisis or did that come later? That came later. The midlife crisis was a disaster. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, because you because when you 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 so articulated that it seemed a natural leap. And, and I'm sure and that's what I wanted to know. Was it a natural leap? Because the pause and reflection would bring that clarity, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah, because it's I've so always... hard when when you're trying to find when you're you allude to this in some of your language, like that that coming home to yourself of where what you thought about when you were thirteen, the thing that makes you happy, that brings you joy, that actually will push you. We get this opportunity at that moment, that midlife moment of, and we spoke about this on um, a recent podcast where the days ahead are shorter than the days behind. <gasps> Is that what it was like for you? Yes, there was a, actually, I remember the day of, I don't know, the, I, I can call it midlife crisis. I was in the supermarket. I was looking at the shelf and I, I heard myself talking to myself out loud in a supermarket. It was, um, uh, and it was that, uh, like, I can I can re- remember it vividly now, and I can remember seeing myself speaking out loud alone with all these other people around, and feeling so completely out of place, out of self. Um, yeah. And that that to me was the kind of like to use that pivot word again, but that was the pivot point where it was like actually you're in the wrong life <laughs> and you need to take, uh, you need to think this through, Deb. You need to not just carry on racing ahead, not just carry on doing whatever, you know. It was, 
on the surface, I had a brilliant life. It was like, you know, I had houses and cars and a boat and a, and a business and, you know, and, and I wasn't happy. But it yeah. was that moment. Yeah. And it was a moment in time that I realized that I wasn't happy and that I had to do something different. I think a lot of people later, well, no, at different points in life, can have that moment, but we never forget them. No, no. And my advice is don't wait for it. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking yeah. like maybe people are kind of like, well, maybe there's going to be a moment when it all just comes together or I just suddenly realise what I want to be or what I want to do. Don't wait for that moment because, you know, I wish I'd have, yeah, I hadn't waited till I was 45 for that moment of insight. I wish, I wish, you know, for everybody that they could have it right now and then move on to the best they can, the best for themselves. Do you think that we can... <clears throat> like sit into ourselves and have that moment come or or rather have that insight come uh, I, in this well, age of mindfulness and mindset. If we are truly honest with ourselves, that knowledge is already there. Absolutely. And do you know what I think happens? Maybe it's, maybe it's different now. We're talking like my midlife crisis was like seven, eight years ago now. Maybe, um, maybe we're more aware of it now. But at yeah. that time, I was racing always to the next thing. There was no even, I mean, I do yoga and riding horses and, you know, all the lovely things. But even doing all those lovely things, it was it was still that feeling of racing ahead to other people's expectations rather than doing what was pausing in long enough to see what was right for me. Powerful. That's really important because we need to say that more. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I felt so bad, by the way, like um, so selfish for saying uh, this life, this, this isn't, this isn't the correct life for me. Like, you know, I made it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It wasn't, uh, it didn't happen to me. I made it. And then I, I, I then destroyed it, basically. Um, yeah. But you're better for it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, and I. Uh, in hindsight, I wish I'd have done it sooner, but I don't. I don't think I would have been ready, if I'm really honest, sooner than yeah. it happened at the right time for me. And I, uh, yeah. Just a, a thought, because we come from a time when we weren't all so self-aware. <laughs> so <laughs> in age, you know, that is mindful, mindful, mindful. Do you think that people won't fall into that trap? Or do you think that they will find that moment earlier? I hope they will find that moment earlier. Okay. Um, but I, I, I guess that we, we, we may still fall into it. People may still fall into the trap, but I hope that they'll find them set that, that where they are in that yeah. problem earlier. I hope that. It would be it's lovely the if they noise. didn't. Yeah. Yeah. It's the noise, you know, it's so yes. much noise. And so many expectations. Yeah. So Debbie has just written a book <clears throat> called <laughs> Stop Writing Books Nobody Reads. <laughs> <laughs> Said in that self same tone, you know. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That is the absolute tone of the book. <laughs> and this, I loved this because you, and you explained stuff to me about how publishing industry has never changed. You took me on this journey when we were having a chat at one point where, you know, originally when books were published, it was always about the guy or the woman's, usually the guy historically, his life's work and as many words as possible and the fatter, the better. But the reality is that there weren't a lot of books around then, whereas yeah. the, the marketplace for books, there is so much in there. So one of the things that's really in incredible or insightful about you is that you've harnessed onto that idea and have produced something that's incredibly helpful to anyone who's considering writing a book. I have to say that because I've read it and I love it Thank and you. I will reread it. Um, like so good. It's so good, Debbie, like bravo. So Thank I would you. love you to share with people because it, in and of itself, if we just have this conversation about what you've written, it will help everybody. OK, well. Thank you, first of all, 
I love it when people say they like what I've written. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, powerful. Thank you. Um, and and it's very short. Um, yes, and that was better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that was deliberate. So this is the thing that I've worked. So I've helped uh, over the last oh, nearly twenty years now. I've helped. Uh, hundreds of people get their book written, get their book published. I've got clients who've been published with the main big four publishers. I've got clients who've been published with all different publishers, lots of clients who've self-published or chosen sort of hybrid publishing. So I've been in books for a long time and I've seen a lot of books. And I kept kind of like, um, there was a stress for me. It was a stress for me. It was like the, the all the people that were writing the books they really had a powerful, powerful messages to share, really great ideas, new ways of doing things. And then they'd accidentally write books that weren't going to get read. I was like, if we can just do this or if we can maybe change this. And for a while, I couldn't work out how, how to get the books read. I really couldn't work it out. It's like, um, you know, when you, you just end up creating more and more and more because that's what everybody else is doing. And you just kind of like keep, you just, everybody's kind of like cookie cuttering the same thing. And it's driving me a bit insane. And then I realized what it was, was that, um, if we carry on doing that old way of books, when the world has completely changed and there is so much information, uh, we're not going to get read. We're just going to, we're just making more noise and our signal won't get heard. So I kind of brought it back and was like, okay, well, where, I was starting to think, so where, where, uh, is there a lot of signal and noise and where is all this noise coming from? <laughs> I found TikTok, TikTok statistic. That's a really hard phrase to say. I'm not going to try <laughs> and say that again. <laughs> Which was that, uh, the average time somebody spends on TikTok, okay, it was 52 yeah. minutes really? to watch one minute videos. Okay. On average, a video on TikTok is one minute and people spend 52 minutes on average. And that means they're watching 52 videos. And that means there are super users who are watching 200 videos yes. per day. And like, I was like, okay, so it's not, we're not, not reading books because we don't have attention as you can watch 52 one minute videos. That's quite a good attention. Um, thing it's because we're not writing the right books for the right people where they are right now so we're like saying hey this is my book uh, I don't care where you are reader I don't care what you need reader this is my book this is how we've always written books take it or leave it and that was so I switched it around and said okay we have to work out what the reader needs right now where they are now and what they need immediately rather than just dump an information load on them when they could probably go and watch 10 TikTok videos and get that same inf information. Maybe not. Some of the TikTok videos I've seen are bizarre, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, but this is a powerful insight because it's teaching us that we need to get to the point faster. Yep. Uh, we need to keep it coming so that we keep their interest. And yep. it has to be valuable in about them. It's not us uh just serving our own egos yes yeah and that was the biggest problem i was finding and there's no fault of uh, of any of the writers it's not their fault at all it's weird see i love modeling things i love i'm an engineer we model things we don't start from scratch we start from something that is, is exists and that's what writers have been doing all along we've been modeling on what's already there um Things have changed so much that if we just carry on modeling on that and, and just iterating books and so that they're 50,000 words and, you know, we start with the world is changing faster than ever, Vucca uh, and oh my gosh, if I read that one more time, I was going to go blind. I was like, you know, <laughs> so it's like, okay, so what do we have to do? What do we have to do? We have to start where the reader is and we have to start with one reader, not, not this avatar lark I really, I really dislike for writing avatars I hate writing to avatars I think it's crazy I hate talking to real? avatars it's not real they're imaginary people with their imaginary problems and their imaginary money and their imaginary kids just stop it <laughs> just stop it uh, talk to one real person because if you can if you write your book this is my like thing about this is if you write a book for one real person and only one real person reads it 
that is a hundred times better than writing an avatar-led book that nobody reads. It's like, you know, I'm not everyone and neither are you. We're all special. So write for special people. Yeah. But you, you, you delved even more. You were able to, and I loved this way of looking stuff. You said there's three types of books you can write. Yes, three types of books. What tends to happen, especially for first-time writers, so if you're a first-time writer and you're, you're thinking, hey, I'm going to write a book, we go off and we model someone else's book, we pick a book we like and we model it, okay? And that used to work, it doesn't work now. Because there are three types of books we should be writing. There are directions-type books, there are map-type books, and there are landmark-type books. And they are for different people, for different one-readers, with different most important problems and at different stages on their journey. And if you, if you as the writer of the book, don't take that into account, you're going to write a book that nobody reads. And that is, I don't want that for anybody because, you know, you've got, you've all got brilliant ideas and people need to hear those ideas and they won't read your book if it's either a mixture of directions, map and landmark or what tends to happen for the first time readers is they write a map type book and map books are bloody hard. Um, They are they take a long time, they go out of date, they are challenging. But let me just tell you the three different types. Directions books are for people who, well, how I call it, they have a, a bleeding neck wound. This is not my phrase, that's, um, I've forgotten whose phrase it is, but it's someone else's phrase, it's a marketer's phrase. They have a bleeding neck type problem. So if they don't fix this thing right now, disaster is going to happen. Okay, so imagine bleeding necks and they need directions. They need, hey, I I need to fix this now. I want to, I don't know, get out of trouble really fast because business is going down. Uh, I need to make payroll this month and I have no money. What am I going to do? Bleeding neck type problem. And you write books that are directions and it's one, two, three, A, B, C. Do this first. Do this next. Stop panicking. (laughs) You know, these are are the rules. These are the, the one, two, three. That's directions type book. And on right on the other extreme, we've got landmark type books, and therefore people with what I call they have a weeping wound, okay, and they have a weeping wound problem that if you if they don't fix this weeping wound problem, will probably turn into a bleeding neck. So then they will need a directions book. But if you catch them soon enough, when they've just got a weeping wound and they might not be able to articulate it perfectly, and you can help them articulate it, and you can help them see it, then you can help them. Uh, with a landmark type book. And if you imagine a landmark type book, the way I say it is you, the writer, standing on the top of a mountain with a big flag and you're saying, hey, it's really great up here um, and get here however you can. But up here is brilliant. And this is where you should be heading because, you know, if you get up my mountain, the world's going to be great for you. Okay. And, and is that what you would call like a thought leader piece? Exactly. That would be a thought leadership type book. That would be uh, a new way of looking at uh, at old problems, a new way of resolving uh, pains, um, a, ca- a new category type book. You know, if you're, if you're inventing a new category, a new uh, way of, of, of thinking about the world. And it's about why you should go up that mountain. So it's a lot of story. To write that type of book, you need to write stories and you need to inspire people and you're not giving them directions because you don't know where they are you can't give them directions if you don't know which side of the mountain they're on you can't say turn left at base camp a when they're base camp b so you you don't know where they are but they can see the flag and it's your job to wave the bloody flag okay those are the two books that thought leaders and um, business owners should be writing they should be writing directions one two three do this now or landmark this is the mountain this is going to help you what happened so and this was what i realized was most uh, uh business owners or small business owners or, or entrepreneurs or consultants or coaches write map type books okay so they right in the middle and they start draw you know, imagine google mapping the world okay they you know imagine how many times google have to go around those same streets take the google earth and mm. take all the directions and how many diversions happen and if you imagine creating a map and uh, my lots of the first time authors write map type books because they think they have to explain the whole territory they have to show where the edges are they have to describe um the swamps and the hills and the valleys and the 
tracks all the way through because there is a desire to demonstrate how much you know about the math. Okay, and that's why books get bigger and bigger and bigger and um, people don't finish writing them. And, uh, you know, you might have been writing a book for 10 years. I have this quite often. People have been writing a book for 10 years. And it's usually because it's turned into a map. And maps are like this never-ending um, trouble for business owners. And we write them by accident rather than by design. Now, there are some really good reasons to write map books. But business owners, in general, you should be writing directions type books or landmark type books. And those books will get read because they address a bleeding neck or a weeping wound. Whereas the map type books are for curious people. It's like, oh, that's nice. And mm. when you've got 73 TikTok videos to watch or read a book, the TikTok videos are winning. So we don't want that's nice books. We don't want curious books. Uh, in general, for our businesses, we want directions or landmark. There's another thing about how you work and which really struck me from reading the book also. And that is that because of the background in marketing and stuff, like when when someone explores writing a book, you'll hear them talk about the relationship with the publisher and oh, they're really not doing a lot of marketing with me. I'm kind of having to do the marketing myself and all that kind of stuff. And it's a real struggle piece. But in built in your process, like pre-writing, during writing, after writing, the whole process is is surrounded by marketing opportunities that actually set you up for success. And I love that. And actually, if if uh, if somebody goes and downloads uh, or well, buys the book either because uh, I'm a Kindle head, so I download, you know, <laughs> but you will automatically get a link to a place where you can see all the assets that go along with Debbie's book. And I and that's just just makes sense to me. And it's just of its time that it the the lines are now blurred that in between the pages is not where the start and the end of the book experience. Oh, absolutely. You're, you're so right there as well, because uh, we we used to go to a bookshop and be, have the books that that bookshop had selected. We had that choice. We had those few books. And then Amazon came along and completely destroyed that model. Um, and now every book ever avail ever written is available to you. So you have all of these books. And you're not only competing with other books, you're competing in Greek TikTok and Facebook and Oh, I don't know, YouTube and everything else. So you can't treat a book as the words on the page. That is not, uh, it's really not enough anymore. It's more than the words on the page. It's the experience that you take somebody through reading the book. It's that transformation that they get with every paragraph, with every chapter, with the whole book. They have to, things have to be different by the time they finish the book. If they're not different by the time they finish the book, then you have wasted their time and that's a really bad thing to do because none of us have time to waste. So you have to have, you have to think about the journey and the job the book has to do for you and for the reader because if it, if it doesn't help them and, and that's why you layer in, this is what my big thing is you layer in what I call enhancements to the book or other people call them bonuses, whatever it is, but you layer in those enhancements because then you're not just saying here are a load of words, work it out yourself. You're saying here are some words. Now go and do this. Here is a worksheet. Now go and do this. Here is a video. Now go and do this. And then rather than it just being words and forgotten, they read, do, and refer. And that's what you want. You want referrals. You want referrals for your book. You want people to read your book and write your review and tell their friends. And uh, that is your best way of, of marketing. We all know that. We all know um, that that the best uh, clients come from referrals. It's the same for your book. But I like that. Read, do, refer. But here's the other nugget that you bring. This idea of, yes, we have to write to this one real person and that we're trying to solve the pain point of a person to help them because of something we've discovered ourselves on our own journey and blah, blah, blah. But the other really great question is, what is the book, what is the job you want this book to do for you? Yes. Powerful question. It's a brilliant question because and it's, uh, lots of people say this about the job to be done, the job to be done, the job to be done for anything that you're doing in marketing or in your business, the job to be done. And people have forgotten to say that, to ask that question about books because we have a legacy relationship with books, which is 
a box. Ta-da! <laughs> you know, we, so yeah. we've forgotten to ask that question about books because we are lazy about we me are lazy about it. And that was when I when I worked that question out. Well, what job? is the book supposed to do? And when I would ask clients, what are you going to do with the book? Well, you know, it's just a really big, heavy, uh, I'm going to smash it on the desk and (laughs) rah. I'm like, okay. And, you know, how is that going to help your business? Oh, yeah, anyway. Uh, (laughs) So what is the job the book has to do? And books can have so many different jobs, seriously. Um, One of them is is obviously selling. And most, most people focus on, I've got to sell my book, sell my book, sell my book. And that, that is uh, that again goes back to the legacyness of books, which is people mm. sell books and people read books and then people buy books and read books and sell books. Okay, your book could have a completely different job to do than than be sold. It could be a giveaway. It could be part of a, a, a marketing flow, a sales flow. It could be uh, a really uh, gentle way of onboarding new clients where, you know, mm. suddenly they are in your world with a 20,000 word book and now they're in your world and you, you can reduce your time to them buying your bigger projects or your bigger programs because they get you and they're into your world. So, and you, but you have to decide that. And I, I have four stages that I, I think people go through when making a decision to work with you. They go through suspects, prospects, expects, and referrers. Suspects, so these are the people you were guessing might want to read your book. And then the prospects who've said, hey, yeah, that's quite an interesting book. I'll check you out a bit more. And then expects who've bought your book, read your book, love your book, and then turning to referrers for your book. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you can decide what job and that little path your book has. But it, it's not just to be sold. It's not just to make money. But that, obviously, it's nice too. And you'll too. sell more if you realise that. You will. You absolutely will. I mean, there are so many different ways you can do it. You know, you, can, you, you, you most people will have seen the um, free book, Just Pay, Post and Package. That's a way of getting book into people's hands. People, you can, when you create a book, you end up with more than one asset. So you don't just end up with the physical book asset. You can have a PDF asset, an ebook asset, audio book asset. Uh, parts from in the book are assets, any diagrams that you create. All of these are tiny baby assets that you can reuse and recycle and upcycle and turn into a different product, turn into courses. So a book is just like, it's like, for me, it's like the gateway drug into all of your marketing and all of what you could do. Share with everyone the different ways that people can publish a book because this is changing and they're, they're interesting opinions. Like I, I spoke to somebody today and they were saying, and I wrote a book and showing me the book and um, but it's self-published and it's like this idea that, you know, all things are not equal, but there is nothing wrong with self-publishing. You know what I mean? Yes, so we stop have apologizing for it. Yes, <laughs> yeah. because I think it's amazing to have written a book in the first place. So can you share with people the three different ways of publishing? Yeah. So, um there are, there are three main ways and there are distinctions and sort of subtleties in them as well. But the big, the three big chunks, and we really should not apologize for self-publishing, but the big, the, the number one, the, the, the legacy way, the way that we all think about books is um, to get published by a traditional publisher. And you get an agent and you get a deal and they give you an advance and they publish your book and they edit it and they design it and publish it and market it. Okay. Well, half of those things they don't actually do anymore uh, because the publishing industry has changed. They're taking massive bets on books and they're looking for a blockbuster and then they'll put all their energy into their blockbusters and then all of the other authors are sort of also runs. So first of all, whichever publishing route, you have to do the marketing. Just accept that. Stop fighting them. Stop begging them to do the marketing. You are a marketer of your book, a marketer of yourself, a marketer of your product, your your services. So that's like number one, accept it. Uh, but the traditional publishing deal is the thing that most people, when I talk to them, look for. And there are really good reasons to go for a traditional publishing deal. And there are really good reasons to go for the other one. So there are pros and cons for everything. Okay. And the biggest reason for a traditional publishing deal, even today, is that there is the kudos of saying published by Bloomsbury, published by yeah. Penguin. 
published by Beast, published by Taylor and Francis, published by named uh, publisher. So there still is that. Um, like advance, <laughs> no, from in my opinion, no. Okay, mm. so that's one end of the scale. Yeah. The other end of the scale, um, if we is is self publishing. So you actually uh, find uh, you write the book, you find an editor, you pay for an editor to edit your book, you find a designer, you pay for the designer to design the interior and to design the cover. You upload your files too. There are so many options for uh, getting the the physical, the prototypes, the real books done. Getting the Kindle done. Amazon is fab, but there are lots of other options too. Um, and you project manage and pay for the professionals to do that job. When people say self-publish, they quite frequently think that they do it all themselves, but that's not self-publishing. That is self-flagellation um, <laughs> because that is just bloody like, hard. I can, I can see a quote from this podcast interview. <laughs> yeah. He just handed it to me. <laughs> and then what's the third one? And the and the middle way, kind of like a half and half house, is what they call hybrid publishing. Lots of people call hybrid publishing, which is you pay somebody else to do that project management and to the and to have uh, created a team of professionals to design the book, design the cover, do the edit, and put the files up. Okay, each of them have their own money differences, and the the. the uh, being like the control freak and it, they also have their control differences. So how much control you get, the writer, the author of the process. Traditional, very little control. Self-publish, pretty much 100% control. Middle, the hybrid publish, yeah, you kind of have to stick in with, um, with what they do and their style and all of that. So those are the three main ones. Now, I I've stopped calling self-publishing self-publishing. I call it choose yourself publishing because actually, oh. why are you waiting to be chosen by a traditional publisher who knows no better than you whether your book's going to sell uh, and become a blockbuster? They're, they're taking a bet. So I'd prefer to take a bet on myself um, and yeah, like choose that. myself. Yeah. yeah, I love that. The other nugget that I want you to share with people, because you kind of alluded to it earlier in our conversation and this idea of all these assets. Mm -hmm. So just and one of the things that came up in our intro and, and previous conversations was this idea of building assets helps you build a business with safety nets. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. So all those years ago, um, when I moved to Spain, I started writing books about Spain, um, my region, because uh, if you like the rough guides, uh, they didn't cover my region of Spain. My region of Spain is like, you know, that's like nobody goes there. That was the sort of attitude. It wasn't Alicante or Malaga. It was just like in between. And so there was no, there were no rough guides to my region. And so I thought, okay, well, that's a great big um, space in the market. I'll write the rough, I'll write the guide to this region. And it's a big region. And so in 2005, I published the first edition of it. I travel i actually visited because i, I uh, every single you no know, competitive competitive i'm going to visit every single bloody town i'm going to take photos i am going to drive around for months on end and check it all out so i did that and i wrote the first book for the region and it sold really really well because there was no competition and then i reused those assets and then wrote a book for buying a house in this region which i haven't updated in um from 15 years um, and still sells. It still sells really well. And then I wrote some cookery books in dual language, Spanish and English, and they sell okay too. No, they're not brilliant. Cookery books tend not to sell really well unless you're quite famous. But, you know, they sell nicely because they're dual language so you can learn Spanish at the same time as um, mm. cooking Spanish food. Okay. Mm. So I had these this little line of books and um, when I sold my half of the business, my, the publishing business, I still had this lovely little line of books bringing me cash in every month. They were assets that the Spain books were assets for me. They brought me, it's not like huge, you know, we're talking a couple of hundred a month, 500, 600, depending on the month. But that gave me um, um, a safety net to explore options. So when I sold my business, I could do things. I didn't, I wasn't um, destitute, penniless. I had a recurring income keep coming in. Okay, and that is that is an asset because I I 
I am a lazy pants. I'm a competitive lazy pants. I am the lazy, lazy pants you can imagine too. And uh, I've done nothing to market those books since. And they just bring a tiny bit of money and tiny bit of money in. But every month, some money comes in from those books. Um, the one book, the main book, we're at its fourth edition. It's a map book. And think yeah. about map books. So it's not directions. It's not landmark. The cookery books are directions book. That this main book that I've been selling, it's 125,000 words. Imagine that. Um, and it's a map book. And I'm now in the fourth edition of that book because maps change and that's what makes them so stressful to write. Um, and that's why I said don't do them. But it's, it's yeah, made me lots scary. of money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's made me lots of money over the years. But I think this is the thing that entrepreneurs want to know as well is like that insight of let's have many assets, because if we have many assets that generate revenue, then that generates the freedom that you wanted from a business in the first place. I mean, it's a really good recognition of saying this is why, you know, um, uh, what would you like to leave people with today? Okay, I think the most important thing, frequently people, when I talk to people who are thinking of writing a book, they think the hardest bit is the writing, okay? they like, oh my gosh, how can I write a book? In my opinion, that is the easiest bit. The hardest bit is knowing what you're going to do with the book and making the right book for the right reader at the right time. Once you've got those bits ticked, writing is easy because you're the experts, you know your stuff. You, you know you know what you're talking about. You, you've been there, you've done it, you've got the t-shirts. The writing bit will come easy. And if if by accident, the right, but you know, by unfortune, misfortune, the writing isn't easy, finding somebody to help you with the writing is easy. What's not easy is the thinking. It, that's the bit that you should spend much more time on rather than the writing. And most of us go like, oh my gosh, I'm writing a book and start writing. Uh, I force people to spend at least two months thinking about it and sit them in the corner with their thinking hat on and we test their ideas and um, we test it and we that's part of the marketing process because if nobody wants to read that book, don't write it. <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah. decide, work it out up front that nobody wants to read it or in fact, whether you should write a book or not because I think maybe the only writing coach that tells people fairly frequently not to write books um, because it's not the right vehicle for some people. So the writing bit is the easiest bit in comparison to everything else that you have to do to get a book read. I think that's yeah. the powerful thing to leave for us it. all to think about. Thank you so much for your valuable time. Thank you for asking me and allowing me to be so chatterboxage. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you'd like to find out more about Debbie and her book, Stop Writing Books Nobody Reads, then check out shortvaluablebooks.com. And if you'd like to support the show, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcast. It's a chance to tell me what you love about the show and helps others discover it too. And I'll be back next week with another great guest. And until then, take care. <laughs>